For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Governor Fallon is getting new rules from the State Department of Health on food safety for edible medical marijuana. The standards largely line up with rules for foods without marijuana, but they do have some additional testing and labeling requirements for processors. Ryan, what do you think of these new rules? You know, I think that these rules aren't going to affect a lot of people's experience right now with medical marijuana, the dispensaries that are opening. Uh, the general patient that's going in probably won't notice a lot other than more information. Some of these dispensaries are already doing this. Some of them are, are trying to in- implement those policies. And, you know, even though I'm uh, a medical marijuana patient holder, card holder myself, and I wish that we would have had this sooner, at the same time, we are the beneficiaries of experience. And you know, we were being able to watch other, organ- other companies and other states and other regulatory regimes operate. And so a lot of the operators in Oklahoma right now already have, uh, you know, they have agreements with, they have operating agreements with folks that have been doing this in other states. So a lot of these processes and procedures that we're copying and pasting from other states, again, beneficiaries of experience, they're already being implemented by a lot of the operators in Oklahoma. So I don't think that we're going to see a lot of interruption. At the end of the day, patients and consumers are going to have much more information about what it is that they're they're buying. And even this was a lot less controversial than rules earlier. That, that it seems like both sides are pretty much in agreement that this is going to work out. And, and I think Ryan's right. I mean, it's been a process. And I think when they kind of walked back their first regulations that clearly the AG's office said overstepped uh, boundaries. I mean, they've been very uh, deliberate to try to make sure that uh, these rules don't really exceed the uh, department's authority. We always have the uh, uh, the possibility when the legislature comes back in in February that they may decide to uh, kind of inject uh, themselves into, into this process, so to speak. But I think by and large, what we're seeing is an effort to make a systematic, thoughtful uh, approach to this that will minimize, um, you know, a lot of the headaches that uh, oftentimes come. And and this has been such a long time coming. I think that may be um, the lion's share of the reason why we're seeing the kind of where we are at this point in time. And there's and there's a lot of information. Lawmakers, I've, I've talked to a handful of lawmakers, uh, especially freshman lawmakers that are coming in, and they're saying that some of the industry groups that are reaching out to them the most right now that they're hearing from the most are from the medical marijuana industry. They're the cannabis growers, the processors, the dispensary owners. They're out talking to lawmakers. I anticipate some of the first legislation that we see out of this session is is going to either be codifying some of the rules that we're seeing right now, maybe adding to them, tweaking them a little bit. But uh, I don't think that we're going to see a wholesale attack on medical cannabis that we saw with the early rules. I think Neva's right there. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have been very responsive to voters and the industry here, and I think that we're just going to continue to see uh, you know, small changes that make this work better for everybody. And there were some things that came out last year, but it was really hard to do any kind of legislation last session because you didn't know whether it was going to pass. Now that they know it's going to pass, they also know the voters' thoughts on it, that maybe they'll be able to pass something that's smart for everybody. I, and I think it's a situation where there's no real value in overreaching or getting uh, uh, getting into the weeds of trying to trying to uh, go beyond, so to speak, uh, uh, what uh, what's already been done in other states. And I think that's what they've been wise in looking at is uh, why make uh, why make the mistakes over and over again that some of these other states have uh, spent a lot of time and energy trying to correct. Governor-elect Kevin Stitt is going to have to wait a little longer than usual to move into his new office. Construction crews are planning to upgrade the governor's office starting next year. In fact, all the offices on the second floor at the state capitol and the Office of Management and Enterprise Services projects a delay of six months to a year 
for the incoming governor. In the meantime, he and his staff will have to settle for temporary offices. Neva, do you anticipate this impacting the state administration? Not really. I mean, this has been an ongoing process in the Capitol since 2015 when it when it started. I mean, everyone knew it was going to take several years to complete. Uh, this is a $245 million project. Uh, and I think we're just, uh, what we see now is probably the best time, if, if there is any good time when you're having to go through a construction phase, in uh, in the transition between uh, uh, Governor Fallon and Governor-elect Stitt and his team coming in. So um, right now it is a transition period. So a transition office basically is used for interviews uh, just to be uh, to begin to formulate and get people hired, uh, get people identified, get policy uh, uh, issues uh, uh, starting to uh, have those discussions. So I think in terms of uh, impact, very little. Um, and I think we already know that this is a uh, that uh, Governor-elect Stitt's going to transition moving uh, uh, the family uh, uh, after the school year from Tulsa to Oklahoma City. There's uh, there so so I think it's the normal give and take that we see in construction. Uh, uh, phases as well as uh, with the transition between the, these two governors. Right. Yeah, I don't think it'll have a huge impact. And what it, at the end, whenever they're at the end of this construction, the governor's office in the state of Oklahoma, the actual office itself will be a much more modern and safe uh, office space for the people that work there. As will the entire building. And right. it's yeah. been a long, tough process. But when you have a 100-year-old building and you've let the entire infrastructure of it just totally uh, totally crater on you, it's a long process to get it back up to code. And as they said, I mean, we have built, you know, we have building and offices such as the governor's office that wasn't even sprinkled. I mean, it yep. was not mm -hmm. it was not up to code. You had there, offices to get through an office. You had to walk through another that's right. office. So, I mean, it, so yeah. I think I, I think this kind of ongoing thoughtful process is going to be refreshing. We just are not there yet, but uh, it is a work in progress. I mean, if there, if there are, uh, Oklahomans need to be concerned about office space right now. It's, it shouldn't be with the governor's office. I think Governor Elect Stitt's team is going to be fine in their transition offices. You know, look at the Oklahoma County Public Defender's Office. You know, they were recently evacuated because of asbestos infestation. We've got Oklahoma public defenders that are on the front lines of the criminal justice system, officing in satellite offices, sometimes out of vacant courtrooms. You know, if, if there's an office crisis in Oklahoma, it's it's elsewhere. It's not in the governor's office. A southeastern Oklahoma Democrat defects to the Republican Party. Ida Bell Representative Johnny Tadlock, who ran unopposed in the election last month, is joining with the majority party in the state house. This drops the minority Democrats to now just 24 members and strengthens the supermajority for the GOP. Ryan, your thoughts on Tadlock leaving the Democrats? Yeah, well, you know, I think that if if he'd had, I think that he's looking at the, the writing on the wall, and he thinks that if he'd had an opponent in that general election, and they had an R next to their name, that he could have gone the way of, you know, Steve Copeland, the the Democratic minority leader uh, in the House, who was defeated by someone who barely ran any sort of a campaign. I mean, there's some debate in political circles about whether or not Tadlock could hold on to a seat as a Democrat, um, but ultimately. You know, what we're seeing here is this this idea of partisan tribalism where if people are voting regardless of, of the policies, they're voting for party. And if you're in rural Oklahoma and you're a Republican, you've got a huge upper hand. If you're in urban areas in the state of Oklahoma and you're a Democrat, you're having an increasingly uh, upper hand. And the, the interesting part about this is that the Republican politics, in particular over the last eight years, have been particularly devastating to rural Oklahoma and to places like Idabel, where Representative Tadlock is from. And so it, whether it's the, the lack of Medicaid expansion uh, in particular, but uh, education funding, you know, those areas of the state have been hurt the most 
but have continually supported Republicans that have pushed policies that have hurt that area of the state. So I'm hoping that maybe Representative Tadlock, who has this appreciation of the issues facing those areas, will walk into the Republican caucus and begin to change their mind. I don't think that's going to happen. It's Pollyannish of me, but it's the end of the year, and I'm, I'm going to be hopeful. Uh, Tadlock had actually mentioned that uh, he had been a pro-life uh, supporter, he'd, and he uh, was a longtime gun user, and touted that as his reasons for becoming a Republican. Well, he did make the point that he that it wasn't really about party affiliation, whether whether we choose to believe that or not. That that was his uh, uh, statement when he made the change, and he really his point was that he felt like he could better represent his district in the majority. That's not that's not uh, something that I think is very arguable when you when you really look at the fact that he is there are only four non-metro Democrats left in the House, none left in the Senate. So uh, the opportunity for uh, for these rural lawmakers to really have a voice, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it does kind of change the political landscape for them. And and frankly, I mean, his profile, someone who had been a sheriff, someone who is a, is a pro-life, uh, NRA-endorsed uh, Democrat uh, that was uh, very uh, forthright on all of the issues that they care about in southeastern Oklahoma, the, the roads and bridges, transportation, health care, uh, public schools. I mean, those were all of the issues that he's championed from day one in the legislature. So um, he probably was better positioned than some to be able to withstand uh, uh, a challenge. Uh, he's, he's had Democrat primaries. He's had Republican uh, general uh, election challenges. So um, I, I, I think it's less about that and more about he saw this as an opportunity to perhaps be in a, in a very uh, big majority and maybe have an opportunity to uh, move some legislation that he is uh, uh, that he's interested in. But but the flip side of this is there's always this give and take uh, when people switch parties. I mean, sometimes the party that they're coming into is not quick to wildly embrace them. Uh, and and I think it was interesting. I I, I was uh, pleasantly. Uh, um, uh, surprised a little bit, but definitely I think it speaks to um, her legislative and leadership style in that uh, minority leader, Emily Virgin. I mean, basically uh, wished, uh, uh, wished Representative Tadlock well uh, in his, uh, you know, in his move. And it was a very, uh, it was a very gracious gesture as opposed to something that was very kind of strident and highly partisan. So uh, hopefully we'll see more of that. Uh, and that's a setup for the legislative session. And that being said, he did run unopposed. Uh, do you think it is kind of unfair to your elected, even though he didn't actually have an election because he didn't have any running, but basically saying after the election saying, oh, well, now I'm a Republican instead of having the chance for a Democrat to maybe run against him. You know, I think that if if uh, if that's the case, then we'll see that in two years. And, you know, if if the constituency in his district you know, really thinks that what he's done is uh, offensive to their uh, uh idea of being represented at the state capitol. We'll probably see a Republican run against him and say, all right, well, if uh, you want a real Republican up there, how about somebody that's been a Republican all along? And with, you know, Democrats, maybe the, a Democrat will be fielded down there. Again, I think that the what we're, what we're seeing right now, and, you know, whether whether he did this because it, it paved the way for him in 2020 for easier re-election or not, the, the fact remains is that he's probably got an easier path to re-election now because he's a Republican and in and, and rural and areas. And it's a presidential year uh, in yep. southeastern Oklahoma has overwhelmingly been voting Republican at the top of the ticket, particularly in presidential yeah. elections. And, and, and until Democrats uh, figure out a way, and I don't know that they can under a two-party uh, system, but under a two-party system until Democrats figure out a way to bridge the cognitive dissonance, dissonance that exists between the issues that actually affect rural Oklahoma and the way that they're voting 
and their, their partisanship, their partisan alignment with the Republican Party right now, in particular on issues like guns and abortion. I mean, I really think that we see we see kind of that, and that's the that's the trade off we've seen in the Republican Party is that the Republican Party elites will capitulate to abortion. They'll they'll appoint pro life judges uh, and they'll they'll uh, defend the Second Amendment uh, at all cost. But then, as long as uh, they get their tax cuts and they they keep things like Medicaid expansion uh, from coming in and they they drive the fiscal policies that affect these areas so negatively. A state lawmaker wants to ban vaping in schools. Owasso Democratic Senator J.J. Dossett has filed Senate Bill 33 to restrict the vapor products in all education facilities with minors, as well as any school-sponsored or sanctioned activities. Ryan, most schools already banned vaping. Why put this in state law? Yeah, I think that there's an idea of having some consistency among school districts of, of, of how school districts should treat this. I think that it sends a signal that, that vaping is an issue of concern. Now, that said, I, I'm hoping that whatever the final version of this bill looks like that we treat vaping as a healthcare intervention, not a punitive measure that could potentially put more kids in detention halls or end up with kids being suspended. Um, because you know we don't lock up adult smokers, we don't lock up adult vapors, even if they're really annoying. Uh, yeah, but in spite and, and in spite of the serious public health risk that that they pose to themselves and other people, we treat it as a public health care matter. We respond with intervention, with cessation programs, and we should do the same thing here. So if, if kids are, are vaping in schools, we need education, we need cessation programs, because otherwise. We're just punishing them for being the unwitting accomplices of like a billion dollar industry that has run a really slick marketing ad and, and oftentimes targeted at younger people. And we're saying, oh, wow, so you fell for that ad that was you were meant to fall for. Uh, and so now we're going to punish you for it. And that's that really shouldn't be it. So ultimate version of this bill uh, will hopefully treat this as a public health issue and not something that just puts more kids in, in detention halls or gets them suspended. Neva. I, and I agree completely. I mean, when you look at the statistics, I mean, they're alarming. I mean, if 16% of high school students in Oklahoma are vaping, I mean, that is an enormously high statistic when only 6% of adults, according to uh, mm-hmm. uh, the TSET figures and others that have been released. So, I mean, it's an epidemic not only in Oklahoma, but I mean, the FDA, their estimates are 1.3 million, I believe, students that they said increase this year over last year using uh, using vaping. I mean, those are numbers that from a healthcare perspective, we've got to really address. And, and if it means uh, going this direction with the Senate bill to uh, kind of move that debate and education to the forefront, uh, I think, uh, I think it uh, should be, you know, should be something uh, that definitely deserves a lot of, uh, a lot of attention. Another bill to be filed at the Capitol comes from felt Republican Senator Casey Murdoch. Senate Bill 21 makes the ribeye the state steak to join other state emblems like the state vegetable, watermelon, the sta- which yeah, Joe Dorman, yeah. uh, the state beverage, milk, and the state tree, the red bud. Neva, I have to say, there are several different steaks out there, like the filet mignon, the porterhouse, the sirloin. Could this, this face some this other? Could hangers, have a serious debate. You elitist with your filet mignon. NPR radio host eating their filet mignon. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> you probably drink this, your beer this, out of a bottle, this, too. <laughs> this would make a fascinating, I guess, uh, Christmas uh, family around the table discussion about the 51 uh, items like this that we've passed uh, that are symbols or emblems that, yeah. uh, that we have. I mean, I didn't realize until uh, I started to to kind of look into this a little bit i mean we have a state dinosaur we have i mean we have all kinds of things that i think people uh uh perhaps if they've been recently in school or maybe have
have uh, run across some of this, but uh, um, I mean, we we clearly have a pattern here where uh, there's an interest on the uh, the part of a number of lawmakers to try to move these kind of things uh, uh, through the process, and and I have no doubt that uh, uh, that uh, Casey Murdoch probably will be successful in this endeavor as well. <laughs> you know, I these these things only own, earn lawmakers grief. Uh, at, at the very best, you're just going to get grief and you're going to get a lot of bad jokes whenever you're back at your, <laughs> your Chamber of Commerce town hall meetings. And, and at worst, they explode into you know, full-on political controversies on the front page of the paper. So I, I don't know why they, they keep doing this. I mean, do they realize that it's not popular? Uh, and you know, I, it's kind of like throwing a, a rose rock at a scissor tail flycatcher. You know, nobody nobody <laughs> really likes it. You know, why do they keep doing this? You know, I, I, I can only imagine. Well, I, I, but that's the thing is, though, I mean, I could... Dad jokes. I could just... The official jokes are. of Oklahoma. Yeah, I think the, you know, no one's going to go against milk. If you say milk's the very okay, great. No, although Dr. Pepper could have had a running. You know, I just wonder steaks. I mean, there's this is a cattle country. There are going to be people who go black English. Angus yeah. should be the steak of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You don't think? I just fear there's going to be controversy, actual I, controversy here. It's you know, if if this is the controversy at the state capitol this year, hey, and, that's true. You know, then then you know, and maybe and things like this. You know, as as much as we're we're sitting here joking about it, I mean, you know, if we can add some levity to that building, uh, so that lawmakers can you know you know you know rib each other uh, <laughs> a little bit across the aisle, uh, and and have have some, you know maybe we can in, uh, in, end up with some interesting friendships and coalitions that come out of these things. Who knows? I mean, uh, but you know, brace yourself for the folks back. If you vote for this, if you're a legislator, especially if you're a new lawmaker listening to this, if you want some unsolicited advice, if you vote for this, brace yourself. Uh, for some uh, some feedback back home that is you know, maybe not going to be the best. Finally, i got to put the two of you on spot because we are having a two-day end-of-the-year membership drive right now. And we're talking about how much, how important journalism is to KOS, to uh, Oklahoma, to America, the, and what, you know, what we bring to, to our audience. I just want your thoughts on journalism right now and why it's important. Neva, let's start with you. Well, I think I think we it's never been more important because I think the public uh, is really uh, uh, very much interested in information. I mean, they they want uh, they want real facts, they want real information, they want it uh, without uh, you know without all the fluff and without all of the uh, editorial kind of uh, uh, slicing of it that oftentimes comes. And I think KOSU. Uh, has done a marvelous job of creating a a, a schedule of uh, information and and the variety of programming that uh, uh, that it entails that really gives uh, something for everyone and really provides an incredible educational opportunity for folks to really become more aware of what's happening not only at the national level but right here at home uh, at the local level and at the state level as well. Right, a- a- accountability and enlightenment. And if we look at the state legislature, we, you know, everybody this week, we saw the, the, the circus that was in the Oval Office and, you know, the, the fight between the speaker and, and uh, the incoming speaker and, and Senator Schumer and the president. And, and, you know, we all talk about that. But most of what happens in our daily lives happens out at the state capitol. And if it weren't for local NPR affiliates like KOSU out at the Capitol joining uh, a crew of dedicated journalists out there, they are our real watchdogs. I mean, we have a state auditor inspector. We talk about corruption. A lot of the stories that ultimately end up becoming pieces of legislation or reform start out because a journalist was out there asking questions. And I think that that's one of the things that NPR does. And then also just brings issues uh, right in front of us that we may never have ever thought about. I mean, the number of times that I'm listening to KOSU and I learn something. I mean, it's almost every day. 
And I think that, or, or I've had my mind changed about things. And I think that, uh, you know, that kind of compelling journalism is so critical to our world right now. The, the ability to change people's minds, the, the ability to open up new perspectives and to hold our government accountable in a way that no one else can. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.